0: Area 941 podcasts are produced and distributed by community-powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org.
1: This is the Bay Area Theater Podcast. I'm Richard Wolinsky, with interviews conducted over the years and during the pandemic with playwrights, directors, actors, and producers. This is the third in a series of interviews about theater in the time of COVID. My guest is Evren Odchikin, who is the associate artistic director up at Oregon Shakespeare Festival in Ashland, Oregon, formerly part of the team at Golden Thread in San Francisco, and before that worked at ACT, American Conservatory Theater, and has been an independent director for some time. He's also the director of This Is Who I Am by Amir Nizar Zawabi, which has its world premiere December 5th through January 3rd online, and we'll talk about that in a little while. But first, let's go back to February. Had you guys up in Oregon, had you figured out your entire season for the coming year at that point, and how did you learn about COVID and when it would shut things down?
0: our season runs uh, on the calendar year. In February, we were uh, about to start our first five shows. We do a repertory season up here. When we closed everything, we had opened five shows at the same time and ran it for six days and had to close. For me, it was kind of an interesting process because I was at that time in Portland directing a production of Nine Parts of Desire by Heather Raffa for uh, Portland Center Stage. So I was in the process of opening and closing a show in Portland while part of the team that was making these really difficult calls. At that time, we thought temporarily closing the season in Ashton, Oregon, a little bit further south. It was such a moving target, if you remember, for all of us. The information that was coming out felt it was sort of in waves and we sort of didn't know if we were to supposed to make a big decision or so it was, I think we just shut down we paused performances for a few weeks, and then once it became clear how serious the situation was and that the turnaround was going to take a long time, uh, there were a series of decisions after that. At which point, you know, at this current moment, we did completely stop our 2020 season. We're trying to find a way to plan for 2021.
1: So all five shows had opened and had given like one performance.
0: Uh, basically each show I think had had something like a three or four performances after opening and then we had to shut everything down it was a pretty brutal process for all of us who had been working so hard to get the shows up but more importantly than anything for me all the artists who had really you know it's really tough thing to open these shows in a repertory situation so it takes so much work with you know some of the actors were in two shows at the same time and You've just opened it and you're sort of just about to start the actual process of engaging with audiences. So it was a pretty difficult, difficult time.
1: You at that point were in Portland. Uh, Had your show opened there?
0: We basically found out that the theater was going to shut down the day before opening. So we we actually did a friends and family opening for staff and a couple of our family members who had traveled up to Portland. Uh, Nora El-Samai, who was an amazing Barry actor, was in it. So we were able to sort of do our opening performance, which was very important and also very, very sad. And then the show was put on hold with the hope that, again, it would come back and then we never were um, able to bring it back, of course, because Portland Center Stage had to cancel the rest of their season as well.
1: So none of these shows, not the five shows at OSF, nor yours, uh, they were not recorded then?
0: Actually, uh, we got a little lucky in the sense that at OSF, Three of our shows, Peter and the Starcatcher and Midsummer Night's Dream, and The Copper Children by Karen Zacharias, which was a world premiere directed by Sharifa Ali. Those three were recorded for internal use, for understudies and some B-roll for marketing purposes. And once it was we realized that we weren't able to bring the shows back, our incredible digital team was able to put together actually impressively high quality streaming productions from those two uh, pieces that were never actually recorded for that purpose. And we were able to get permission from our union partners to stream those. And so the shows did have a little bit of a further life, of course, and were able to be seen by so many people actually around the world, which was, um, I guess, the one weird silver lining of this moment is that our reach is not local at this moment. It's certainly not the way we wanted the runs of these. And they were absolutely gorgeous productions uh, to go for the rest of this year.
1: When did they run? In like May or June?
0: Oh gosh, I should know this. Um, It was during the summer. Time is such a weird thing at this point in time that, you know, they might've been last month or four months ago and it probably feel the same, but I'm pretty sure uh, they ran over the summer. Uh,
1: So conceivably, OSF, if they get the permissions, could bring them back and put them online again.
0: The unions actually just released a new series of things. So it would be a process to bring those specific streams back. But um, we are certainly at this point considering and looking into bringing a lot of our archival productions back from years past uh, as part of a digital season, hopefully. So that's something that we're working on. And I know a lot of other theaters are working on, too, in this time where we're not able to do live production production. It's just a way for us to stay connected with our audiences. And again, silver lining to connect with completely new audiences and introduce them to OSF.
1: Ever in, uh, chicken, let's go back then to the decisions. Mm-hmm. So the shows close. Yeah. You come back to Ashland from Portland. Yeah. And you start having meetings. I know that uh, over at theater Rhino, for example, uh, John Fisher within a week, began putting up his one-man pieces on their website and on Facebook Live. I know when talking to um, Pam McKinnon that ACT began immediately thinking in, in terms of online. What was going on in the minds of folks at OSF and particularly your artistic director, Itaki Garrett?
0: We decided as OSF to take a little bit more time Part of Nataki's vision, she started um, last in 2019. And when she started, was uh, to have a digital platform for OSF, which we had launched called the O. But that was not part of like just a COVID response for us. It was actually very much a part of our ongoing vision for what the future of OSF was going to hold. So we wanted to take a little bit longer to really launch it and not just rush into things, and also. Us being a repertory company, the number of artists we're working with at that time who were in our housing in the middle of Southern Oregon, as well as, you know, sort of the importance of OSF's place in Ashland's and Rogue Valley's economy. We just wanted to be a lot more thoughtful with regards to how this conversations around shutting the season down, layoffs, um, both for artists and our staff, and how we would be managing our relationships with you know, all of the audiences and business partners we have in Ashland, Oregon, because OSF shutting down has a huge economic impact in this region. We, you know, account for $120 million of um, commerce in the Rogue Valley (laughs) each year, which is huge for such a small community. So we did not rush into anything. We were, uh, I'd like to think, a little bit more thoughtful. But um, the nice thing was that because there had been so much thought put into what this digital uh, planning could be, digital platforms could be, there was a way to sort of launch that in a more holistic way. And if you go to osfashon.org digital, which is where O lives, you'll get to see that there's actually an incredible diversity of content that you might not see from some other theaters, although at this point, you know, places like Woolly Mammoth and The Public, other theaters are also following suit or have been doing it in the same way. I'm actually really proud of the way we've been able to sort of um, respond to this moment with thoughtfulness and kind of a diversity of approach in terms of what theater or dialogue or connection in this digital sphere could be.
1: Over at Rhino, because they were always kind of um, you know low budget, there wasn't that much they had to worry about as long as they kept their subscriber base, which they did. The situation at ACT was a little bit different because of their size. And uh, eventually, they had to give up their offices at 30 grand, basically. So they've had to really contract. Did you guys?
0: Yes, of course. As I said, our situation is a little bit more difficult because we're a destination theater. So it was about. Uh, providing housing for the artists was a big question, so we were we were able to sort of provide free housing for about three months, and then be able to put people on leases that were way under going rate in Ashland. Uh, since then, and then after that, of course, we did. Uh, at this point, we're at about ten to fifteen percent of our original uh, staff size. So there were two layers of layoffs for our staff, which you know. At a place like OSF, very much, I'm sure, like ACT, there are people who've been here and who've been working for this organization longer than I've been alive at 39, 40 years old. So it was a really, really difficult process. And right now, we have not had to let go of any of our spaces other than some housing units, um, some apartments we were renting. But other than that, we've been able to actually hold on to all of our spaces, both performance and office spaces, although everyone is pretty much working from home. And we're a much leaner staff where so many of us are doing so many jobs that are not actually in our job description to be able to keep the organization going. So it's been a really, really difficult time. But I'm also, again, very proud of the way we've been able to handle it, the communication being done, to be able to do you know, two months of healthcare for anyone who was laid off, of course, OSF situation is doubly complicated because then we also had to res- deal with and respond to the Almeida fire on September eighth, which you know burned through parts of Ashland and Talent and Phoenix, which are communities right next to ours, and which impacts so many folks who are our audiences, our staff. You know, a lot of folks lost their homes, so there has been a whole other layer of emergency that OSF staff and leadership we had to respond to.
1: You jumped the gun on one of my later questions because I was kind of trying to work a a timeline and the next step in the timeline from when COVID shuts everything down is Black Lives Matter. Of course. How did that movement, how did what happened in June impact the decisions over at uh, Oregon Shakespeare Festival?
0: Black Lives Matter feels like it started a long time ago, but on um, George Floyd's murder, of course, sort of foregrounded in this moment of pandemic a conversation that a lot of folks have been having for a very long time. And given sort of OSS leadership in the equity, diversity, inclusion, and now anti racism work, uh, and the fact that our artistic director is a Black woman, I think certainly foregrounds some of that conversation too. It certainly had an impact on us in terms of how. We had to sort of very publicly speak to this and thoughtfully uh, respond to the kind of really terrible things that have happened in the American theater. And OSF is certainly not excluded from that. But we were, I think, a lot more prepared and had been having the conversation much earlier than some of our partners in the larger theater theaters around the country. Having said this, as you might, you're probably aware, Richard, there is a We See You White American Document series of demands that is put forth by um, BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, and other people of color artists that came up just around the same time, and we've been really, really specific in the ways in which we have those conversations internally to respond to those demands. At OSF, this is sort of the important thing: is that we were ahead of the pack in the sense that some of those demands spoke to things we were already doing and had already decided to do, but we are really trying to take this moment to do better than the demands, if that makes sense. So the last few months, a portion of our attention certainly has been focused on those conversations and preparing for how we reemerge better and more just and with more inclusion of folks who've been, you know, purposefully left off our stages or of our audiences, most importantly.
1: Now we move back into something you mentioned before, which is the fire. For about 10 years in the 90s, One of my best friends lived in Jacksonville, and so I would make the trek up from the Bay Area, drive up. But anyway, I'd get up there, and it was beautiful, driving past Talent, driving past Phoenix. We came into Ashland, saw Plays. I I guess Jacksonville was spared.
0: Yes, Jacksonville, the fire stopped before it got to Jacksonville, certainly.
1: But it must have changed the landscape on both sides of I-5.
0: It is um, uh, quite a sight at this moment. The devastation is um, really serious. Whole portions, a a very large portion of Phoenix is completely burned. Large portions of Talent. And, you know, I think about 64 houses were burned in Ashland, as well as a gas station exploded, which was probably the most dramatic thing that happened in Ashland at that time. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty scary. The fire's start point was in Ashland. It was about a mile and a half from where I live in uh, the railroad district, and almost, I believe, less than a mile from where the OSF campus is. The winds were in our favor, so it pushed the fire towards other cities, And um, but it could have very well been going the other way, and we would be dealing with a very different situation at OSF. Of course, Talent in Phoenix really provided a lot of very affordable housing for folks who are In the farming industries, in the service industries here, about 24 um, OSF staff members lost their homes and many, many, many more were, um, of course, displaced for a very long time. And the thing that we were able to do, which I'm so proud of, is um, we immediately sort of went into action mode and were able to provide housing. And we still actually have so many families who are in our housing right now. Uh, who were impacted both from OSF and others and sort of really engage in a public uh, fundraising um, effort, along with fundraising for OSF, of course, uh, really pushing for this fundraising to help those impacted by the fire. And we just actually were able to share a good portion of our Gallup uh, proceeds, about $175,000 was shared with 10 organizations who were in the front lines doing fire relief work. And for some of those organizations, the money they got like doubles their annual budget. So it was just really, really wonderful to see the ways in which this community came together at the, in the middle of such a dead, such devastation, and to work for an organization that just believes in doing the right thing, so that there was never a question of if we were going to do anything, it just became about what we were going to do. And the other thing I should highlight is that the staff was able to set up a donation center in Ashland in one of our buildings immediately. It was literally less than 24 hours. And that was actually one of the longest running donation centers that really supported so many folks, um, especially those who were, um, whether because they do not have English skills or because they're undocumented, were not feeling comfortable or able to access you know, FEMA resources and other governmental resources. I was really proud of the way that OSF in tandem with so many organizations as I said who were working in the front lines um sort of came forward to take care of those in most need at this time
1: had you evacuated or was that not necessary we
0: never had to evacuate our cars were packed my husband and I and uh, we packed our cars which is a very very scary traumatic experience of you know making choices of what you're going to keep and what you're going to leave behind and we were ready to go we um almost had to evacuate the day after September 9th, but then it was lifted. So we never had to move, but we could see the fire from our windows. And that's actually kind of a really interesting thing, the way in which that trauma of, you know, and so many in the Bay Area, of course, for KPFA dealt with this as well. Even if you yourself are not evacuated, the trauma and the fear of that is really real. And I think our whole region is sort of reeling from that and still dealing with the emotional aspect of what that kind of a communal loss means
1: specifically in the east bay of course we didn't have those issues but during the summer the smoke was so bad we had one day it was a wednesday when the sun never came out it was night all day yeah it was like we'd entered the apocalypse and i'm sure you felt it too
0: yeah it was really interesting because of the wind patterns we certainly dealt with really really bad smoke it was at the time of the fire immediately following was everyone was posting online the sort of the red uh, Blade Runner 20, you know, 2040 post-apocalyptic, like Hollywood version of post-apocalyptic photos, but they were real from San Francisco and all over the Bay Area. And it was really interesting. The West Coast, we, I feel like we really went through an experience together this summer. Each of us was impacted differently, but um, I feel like no one was not touched.
1: For you, Evren, as a director and as an artist, on some level, how does this trauma of the past year change your way of dealing with your art, or does it?
0: It's a really good question. I mean, This Is Who I Am is my first production in this digital sphere, and I'm such a live action person. I'm a very physical director. I'm you know, up on my feet all the time in the rehearsal room, really engaging with the actors in that, you know, in-person kind of way. And that's sort of what I love. Um, that's the thing that's kept me going in the theater, you know? So um, there was certainly a moment of mourning. What I found really interesting about the process of working digitally is you have access to less information in rehearsal and in performance. You're really only able to get what you're seeing in these little Brady Bunch squares on Zoom, you know? Um, And you do not have the sort of uh, same visceral in-person kind of conversation with a person. And when I say conversation, I mean the like hormonal, physical things you can read from another body. And that has been a really interesting process. I actually just had to tell my actors that they need to tell me more things that I cannot actually pick up on stuff. In the same way that I used to be able to in person, it's kind of interesting to think of your work in a global way. You know, this production will be the first production that my family in Turkey will be able to see of mine in almost 20 years, and that is so interesting to me that I'm making this work for folks who are all over the world. It's a play that you know um, takes place in New York and Palestine, and if they have access to internet, it's quite possible that people in Palestine could be watching this play in Ramallah where the play, you know, the father in the play lives. And the idea that I'm building this play literally for them in that way is also really moving. I don't know how it changes my perspective yet as an artist, but it's something that I've been really aware of that my perspective on who is watching my art has to be wider, has to be larger. In a way I feel less limited by, theater audiences. As you know, you know, theater audiences tend to be less diverse than we would like, both in age, gender, race, ethnicity, class, you know, whatever, you name it. And in a way, now I can imagine my audience to be more like the world. And that's my hope. In a way, I'm hoping I'll have to do less translation of what the kind of stories that I want to tell are in this moment. But, you know, talk to me after the play has Uh, performed and maybe I'll have a different kind of this is sort of an idealized before we go into performance kind of space I'm in Uh,
1: well speaking of the play then okay so it's a father and son and insofar as I can tell the play is actually their online video conversation is that correct
0: yes so it was a commissioned play by Playco in New York and Woolly Mammoth in DC Um, They commissioned Amir Nazar Zouabi, who did "Oh My Sweet Land, which some folks who live in the Bay Area or New York might have seen over the last couple of years. And the piece is actually written for Zoom. So we're not having to pretend anything. The conversation that takes place in Zoom and all of the quirks of it is very much built into the play. It's been a really interesting experience because the play also, the two of them are cooking together and it's performed live. So it's going to be performed every day live and broadcast live to audiences. And there is something really moving. Just having, I, I, We just did a, a, a run through earlier today. So I'm very fresh off of it. It is actually really interesting to see two people cook together over Zoom and how much that action of the fact that they are touching the same dough, they're smelling the same cooking. And even though we can't take part in that, There's something about the liveness of it that actually feels really vital and um, jumps out of the screen and it gives you that sort of theater experience in a different way. And that's been the really interesting thing for me is that I've certainly engaged with a lot of digital work as a producer, as a programmer, but not really that much as an artist up until this point. And turns out the thing I was missing was the liveness. That's the non-negotiable for me, turns out. Um, And it's been really, really wonderful to be able to sort of, as you said, flex some muscles and see how I feel and what I think and how my work functions within the context of this new reality that we're all in.
1: In the play, one person is in the U.S. and the other is in Mm Ramallah. Where are the real actors?
0: So I'm in Ashland, Oregon. My stage manager is in D.C. One of our actors is in Virginia. The other one is in upstate New York. Our playwright is in Israel right now. And we actually had one of our producers in London. Our dramaturg, Joe Hodge, is in Minneapolis. So um, when we get our daily calls, it's actually in six different time zones right now. And (laughs) the stage manager is calling breaks. She has to give the breaks in three to four different time zones.
1: Uh, Well, on top of that, uh, I forgot who I was talking to about this. It was a playwright a couple of months ago. When you're doing live plays, through the internet, the internet is not necessarily going to be your friend during the place.
0: That's actually something that became really clear in this moment is that we can talk at all at length about how inaccessible theater industry, theater performance has been for so many folks before, whether that be financial or disability or in so many different ways. But The internet makes it more widely available, but there are still pitfalls and internet access and technology access is a big one. One of the things we had to do, um, our New York, upstate New York actor had high level internet and the computer to be able to handle what we're doing. The actor who's in Virginia didn't. Part of the expense was to make sure that he had the equipment and the high level internet access, uh, to be able to take part in the production. So it's actually something. You sort of have to think ahead for that kind of issue, and some of it is you know we 'll see we'll see we'll deal with the technical difficulties as they happen in live performance like you would in person you know, but it's also really actually uh, as producers and programmers and artists, we have to sort of think ahead about not making any assumptions sort of for what people have access to
1: ever odd chicken before we go uh, a quick look at. What OSF has been doing online, I noticed 3D video, you have audio productions from the past, which I guess you're now negotiating to put the videos on. Is that correct?
0: Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, we've done so many things. We've streamed full productions. We have these beautiful recordings of some of our Shakespeare productions with Blackstone Media, and we were able to release those. There are a ton of conversations uh, and there's a lot of, we've been actually doing some takeovers of both O and our social channels for, you know, Latin A Heritage Month, Juneteenth, Pride Month, Transgender Day of Remembrance. We're having a lot of artwork that's coming on board there as well. So it's a um, it's been actually a really wonderful opportunity, again, to experiment and see what works. We did a dra- live drag show for Pride. We have so many sort of American Revolutions Playwrights conversations, which is a commissioning initiative for us. That's going to be in the next season. We're about to release some art equity podcasts, a video podcast with uh, sort of leaders uh, around the country uh, talking about the sort of kind of uh, the Black Lives Matter or the EDI conversation that's been centralized right now. Um, So there is just really great opportunity to expand the conversation. And we're about to release a film, Ashland, This Is Who I Am is coming out. I'm sure we're going to be doing other live productions online, whether it be readings or full production. So the sky is the limit at this moment. And as we sort of think our way through this moment, I'm really excited to see as we come back to live production, knock on wood towards the latter end of 2021. I'm hoping that this digital world and the kind of access and open-mindedness that it's brought to our field, that that doesn't go back, that it just becomes a plus. Because there is something really beautiful about us thinking about our work locally, like theater is, and then globally, like the digital theater has been. And if we can actually hold both those spaces at the same time, I think this might be a really amazing moment of step forward for our industry that's been a long time coming.
1: When you're looking at 2021, 2021, we don't know when the shift is going to happen. What is OSF doing about that? I know that both people I've spoken with in the t- those two theater companies, they're kind of have this fuzzy area about May through July.
0: Are you guys thinking in the same way? For us, it's actually kind of an interesting approach because we're a repertory company, which means, you know, we're destination theater, unless we have multiple shows running there isn't particularly a reason why anybody would get into their car and drive up here or drive down here from Seattle. So um, in a way, our rev up time for first production is longer than, say, ACT or Theatre Rhino. So we have to be really careful about the ways in which we're planning. And it's really about having multitude of options. I mean, I can't even remember the number of season, seasons we planned since the pandemic, I feel like we're in the like 20s, and right now we have multiple options possible, but I would say in terms of the true theater rep that we're doing, that's going to be coming in towards the fall of 21. In a way, our timing lines up a lot more with, say, opera companies like The Met, uh, more than some other more traditional theaters that do want to show at a time. But having said that, we do have a lot of plans. if fingers crossed, new administration. There seems to be some hopes for a vaccine. And if the, um, the vaccine is, supposed to, is able to be spread around the country in a timely fashion, we might be able to start doing some programming that might not be traditional theater over the summer. And that's really what we're focusing on is how do we get live performance and really action back in Ashland, Oregon, Right now, to be able to be in partnership with our community partners and our business partners, to be able to get the city back up running, and then to push towards a o- real opening of our OSF season, probably more in the September, August, September space.
1: One final question, Evren, uh, chicken. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing okay. Uh, I mean, it's, it's tough. Um, this is not the first season, you know that I had imagined for myself when I finally got one of these jobs. So there's certainly moments of real mourning. There's real moments of sort of um, really having to take stock of all that has happened, but also all that we have accomplished. I feel really proud of the ways in which I've been able to help OSF, the ways in which I've been able to support the way we've taken care of our artists, our community right this time. But I do think in a couple of years, looking back, it's going to seem like the most crazy time. You almost have to keep going right now. So you don't have a lot of space uh, to sort of take stock of how you're feeling. Uh, but in the at the same time, I have to say, I've always been in this business to serve. I'm a nonprofit child. That's how I'm built. So it, it's always been that my mission and vision of what my impact is is so much larger than myself. And What's happening to me, or what I'm doing, and in these moments of real devastation and need, I'm glad that I'm built that way because I can focus on the larger questions, the largest, larger suffering, and the larger impact decisions that we're making can have towards a positive change in the American theater and beyond, and that keeps me going. But yeah, I, I I'm looking forward to uh, we're going to be getting about a week off next week and. I think my body will be very thankful for that week.
1: For me, after the election, I began sleeping through the night again, which I hadn't since December.
0: The election has been, it's almost any one of these things that have happened over the last year by themselves would be too big and too impossible to handle. But when you lay them all on top of each other and the election and the craziness that is still going on with it and the stress, the literal physical stress of that, is certainly the one last thing that we're all dealing with, I think. It is true that I had not quite acknowledged what it was doing to my body until the day that Joe Biden's victory was officially announced. And even if we're going through a process right now that's scary, uh, my shoulders are certainly a little bit lower and I I feel a little bit less, as you said, sort of sleep deprived and crazed uh, now that that's happened.
1: You've been listening to an interview with Evren Odchikin, who is the Associate Artistic Director of OSF. And for more information and to see what OSF has, you can go to their website, osfashland.org. And This Is Who I Am, which Evren directed, is playing December 5th through January 3rd. And to find out more and find out the timing... And other information, again, you can go to osfashland.org. I'm Richard Walensky, and see you next Sunday for another edition of the Bay Area Theater Podcast.